Last week, we skipped around a bit in our major minor prophet sermon series, our study of the 12, to look at the book of Habakkuk because I wanted to help us make sense of the suffering that we experience in life as we try to make sense of the suffering. Our very own dear sister is valiantly fighting and battling through, and we are walking from the outside and from the periphery, uh, periphery, nevertheless, we are watching. And so we wanted to take a moment to pause and try to make sense of that. And I'm gonna continue to ask you that you pray for our dear sister and that you pray for her wonderful husband as the Lord remains their strength and the Lord remains their hope as you obviously see here today with their presence in this room. This morning, we want to turn our attention back to Hosea, and we want to look at Hosea chapter 6 and chapter 7. When we last left off from Hosea, God was declaring judgment against Israel. They had broken his laws, and in the words of the Lord, they had played the whore, meaning that even though they were called out by God to be fully committed to him, and to call him not only their God, but their only God, and to be known not just as a people, but as his people, they were not, they were not walking in step with that. They were chasing other lovers, so to speak. And their spiritual adultery was not only being demonstrated through their infidelity um, as, it, as it relates to Hosea's wife, but it was also storing up judgment from God. And when we last left this book, God was declaring that this judgment was quickly approaching. This brings us to chapters 6 and 7, which are basically broken into two parts. The first part is the very first three verses of chapter 6. It's a, it's a song of appeal that's written to Israel to turn back to the Lord. And the second part is God's devastating unmasking of Israel's true heart, his frustration with Israel, his lament even of Israel as he beckons them to turn, and yet at this point they refuse. And so there's an appeal, and then there's a frustration. Those are the two parts in these two chapters that I would like for us to unpack. First, the appeal. This chapter opens with a song of sorts. But we are not 100% clear who is actually reciting the words to this song. This could be the chorus of the people collectively. This could be God, or this could be Hosea. And I'm inclined to say this is not necessarily God's words back to Hosea, but this is Hosea's words back to God. I have a few theologians who would agree with that assessment, but there's many theologians all over the map as it relates to who's who in this particular first three verses. But I believe this is Hosea making this appeal to the people who have collective, collectively turned their backs on God. Nevertheless, the one that is giving the appeal does not necessarily change the nature of the appeal. This is a call for the people to repent. 
period. doesn't matter who's giving it. This is a call for the people to repent. This is a call for the people to turn away from their idols that they, uh, that they are cheating on God with and to return back to an exclusive spiritual devotion with God and to God alone. And the appeal through this song actually has two stanzas or, or two verses, if you will. The first verse is, come let us return to the Lord. Come let us repent. And then the second verse is, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. First, first the first verse, repentance. Again, verse 1, come let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Yes, Ephraim, a.k.a. Israel, has committed spiritual adultery. They have traded their eternal God for idols that cannot speak and idols that cannot think and idols that cannot hear and idols that cannot reason. They have rejected God for idols that cannot protect them and cannot provide for them and cannot offer them hope, much less eternal hope. And so for that, they are disciplined by God. Chapter 5, verse 13, we read this, when Ephraim saw his sickness... And Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. And so for this idolatry, God has returned back to his holy place waiting for Israel to turn away from their idols and come back to him. That's what it says in verse 15. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. So in light of this news, this judgment that is bearing down on Israel and, this, and, and, and God declaring, I am going back to my place and I'm waiting on them to turn back to me. There is an appeal that is made in chapter 6 to God or to the people of God, rather, to return back to God. And what will happen when we return? Chapter 6, verse 1 again, For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. The first thing that will happen if we return back to God is that God will heal us. Our spiritual sickness, our corporate sickness, our collective sickness, he will heal us. Here we see that God's discipline towards his own will oftentimes leave us collectively, spiritually, emotionally even, battered and bruised, but it is not without purpose. Many of you don't know that I was once a pretty good ultimate Frisbee player. And the reason that you don't know that is because that is not true at all. <laughs> I was not very good. And Jonathan, if Jonathan was in the room, he would be able to acknowledge that. I'm actually pretty terrible at it. But I did play it for a little while on Tuesday night as a well-aged man. And I was always told as I played this sport that I needed cleats because um, I was, I was um, you know, I, cleats were an important part of the game. But I always talked myself out of that need. You know, I mean, I would say things in my head like, I'm not doing that much running anyway, so 
I don't really need cleats if I'm not running. And this, is, this feels like a very low-intensity sport for me. It doesn't feel like very, very, it's real high intensity. And I'm still not sure even up to this point if this is really a sport. So I'm trying to figure this out. So I don't even know if I need cleats for this thing yet. You know, all the arrogant thoughts that you would expect a well-aged guy like me to hold in his head. And so with this arrogance, I strutted out there every Tuesday night and I would play with running shoes or even worse, I would play with basketball shoes on some Tuesday nights to play a sport that I had no business playing, probably at an age that I had no business playing it, and certainly with a group of kids that I had no business being out there on the field with without the proper equipment on top of that. And then on that one infamous night, I was jogging down the field with my well-aged strut when the Frisbee started heading my way. And as I was trying to brace myself for the catch, I realized that the Frisbee was behind me, so I had to slow down in order to catch it. You know where this is going. No cleats on. I start slowing down. My knee goes one way. My body goes the other. It was brutal. I laid on the ground writhing in pain. But of course, I was a well-aged man, so I didn't cry. <laughs> too many young kids watching. And I thought to myself, as I laid there writhing in pain, I should have got those daggone cleats. <laughs> I've never played Ultimate Frisbee again. But should I decide to do so, I will do so with cleats. This is what our elders, our older folks, used to call a bought lesson. The pain served as a teacher of sorts. And this appears to be God's purpose and his discipline towards Israel. Here's a spiritual principle for you. God will sometimes discipline us in order that he might actually heal us. There's things in us that God will use discipline to root out of us. Here Hosea says, for he has torn us, he has ripped us to shreds in order that he might put us back together again. He has struck us down in order that he might bind us up. This frequently is the mode of operation for God. Grabbing our attention with discipline when we refuse to listen, but using that discipline as a tool to rescue us from our idols. We see it over and over again. We hear it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. But his plan is never to leave us that way. Return to the Lord that he might heal, bind, put back together again. Return to the Lord in order that he might raise us up. After two days, verse 2 says, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Of course Israel and Judah would have heard these words and thought immediately about the direct connection and direct implications for themselves. And there is plenty of truth towards that. But God will raise us up so that we take 
new life, that new life, and God will raise us up so that we will live that new life in full devotion towards him has a deeper implication here. Paul quotes this verse, I believe, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, because it's really the only place that he can refer to it when he's talking about the Scripture saying this. And Paul talks about the fact that God raised Christ up on the third day, as the Scriptures testify to. In other words, as this is being spoken by the prophet to Israel, it is also being foreshadowed about Christ. And it is that resurrection from a literal grave that makes my res resurrection from the grave of death and idolatry possible. It is the resurrected life that Christ offers that I'm now called to enjoy in the presence of God. But this is the first verse. There's a second verse to this song. Verse 3, it says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. The first verse is about returning to God in repentance. But the second verse is about the pursuit of knowing God. Our fellowship with God is not just about turning back towards God, but it is about also a wholehearted pursuit to better know God, to experience God, to deepen our understanding of who God is through love and through worship and through prayer and through Scripture. Here's the good news. When we seek to know who God is, we can rest assured that he will certainly make himself known to us. Hosea declares that the certainty we can hold in God, making himself available to us and known to us when we turn back to him, is as sure as the rains that come in spring. There may be some of you in the auditorium or some of you online here who have tried to live your life absent of God's rain. You sought the idols of the culture and they've left you empty and void and battered and bruised. Heed this call from Hosea. You may be wounded, but return to the Lord in order that you might be bound up. You may feel like you are all but dead, but return to the one that raised you from the grave in order that you may be raised along with him. Or the one that raised from the grave in order that you may be raised with him. You may feel like you are far from God and no longer even know his ways. But when you pursue knowing God, he is as sure as rain in the spring to make himself known to you. Come, let us return to the Lord. Now, this should be a very hopeful and happy ending to this chapter, but it actually leads to about 20 more verses of frustration because Israel does not answer this call. This shouldn't be shocking, for there are many who have heard this same call, come, let us return to the Lord, and have rejected this call in the same way. There are many of us, routinely, who hear this call, come, let us return to the Lord, and who have rejected this call in a similar way, which leads to God's frustration in the remaining portions of these two chapters. The rest of this text uh, confronts Israel in their less than authentic commitment towards repentance. We hear the appeal, but it is met with frustration and sorrow because the appeal is not genuine. God starts out with what reads like an exhausted sigh in verse 4. He says, what shall I do with you? 
O Ephraim. What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Here we see God invoking the imagery of an exasperated father and or mother. For the fathers and mothers in the room, have you ever been there? For the sons and daughters in the room, have you ever created this? These words may sound very close to words that have come out of the parents' own mouths in this room when they are dealing with their children. This is, these are the words that you speak when you're at your wit's end. You try multiple ways to get through. You try being nice. You try being firm. You try being reasonable. You try being parental and responsible and mature. You try being friendly. And no matter what, no matter what way you approach them, they refuse to listen. Almost to the point where you're like, I'm about to cuss these kids out. <laughs> because they don't seem to answer it any other way. I, I think I'm about to just go crazy on these kids. And if you've ever felt that with your children, you felt what God is experiencing with his people now in these verses. God routinely extends unceasing grace towards us in our inconsistent life of devotion towards him. And then that grace is often met in the same way Israel meets it here. With a blah. So what? What's the big deal? Inconsistency. Inauthenticity. Or inauthenticity. Inauthenticity. And at the heart of it, this inconsistency is a lack of love. Verse 4 says, your love is like the morning cloud, like the dew that girl goes early away. Here God diagnoses Israel's biggest issue. Their love is shifty. Here we see nature being used again in metaphorical language, but instead of it being used the way it was used earlier when referring to God's certainty, the sureness of spring showers, the sureness of the morning dawn, Israel's use of, or God's use of Israel's, uh, Israel's love as it relates to weather is being compared to dew and clouds in the morning. In other words, fleeting and shifty, here today, gone tomorrow. And here's another shaky quality of their love. It's not authentic. Verse 6, it says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now notice, it's not a lack of activity that leaves God making this statement. They are producing sacrifices. They are producing offerings. But their love is seen as inauthentic and fleeting because their acts and their rituals are tied up into lives that are swallowed up by adultery and immorality. See, brothers and sisters, we must remember that our love for God is wrapped up in our fidelity to God. Our love for Christ is wrapped up in our fidelity to Christ. He is not impressed by a few acts that are drowned out by a life of idolatry. Let's say you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend that you are considering taking to the next step. But as you contemplate spending the rest of your life with this person and even begin to contemplate a possible timeline for getting married, you find out that this person has been cheating on you with multiple people. 
you're furious. And so you go and you confront this man or this woman who you thought you would spend the rest of your life with. But they respond with, whoa, 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 come on now, let's, let's calm down. Let's, 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 let's think about this. You don't have to really worry whether or not you're the only one for me. You are the only one for me. I just have a couple of others, a couple of other men or women, you know, that I just, you know, I just, I date them and, and I'm intimate with them to pass, you know, just to pass the time away. I, I'm just a little bored and need some things to do. And, and besides, I have a lot more fun and a lot more fulfillment and a lot more enjoyment with them. And I'm definitely going to continue to be with them. But listen, it's really just you. It's really just you. And then they proceed to break out with a very emotional and heartfelt song to you and put a ring on your finger and say, you are really and truly the only one that I love. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? God is describing something similar here. When we express love for him with, while wholeheartedly moving in directions that are completely against everything he stands for. The Lord calls us to love one another, for example, without dissimulation. That means to love one another in a genuine, authentic way. That is not a call to stop loving when we are faking it. That is a call to fight in the spirit to stop faking love. But it, it not just, it's not just in how we love one another that we're called to, have, to let our love be genuine, but it's ultimately in how we love God that we are called to let our love be genuine. Chapter 6, verse 7 through 10, it says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead, uh, Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. The priests are literally leading the charge in this hypocrisy. They are producing sacrifices and offerings. They are singing all the love songs to their only one. While they are literally running around to whomever comes and giving their fidelity away. They are also neck deep in corruption. They're neck deep in conspiracy. You see, these people's fake acts of commitment can't hide their worship of power and their worship of money and their worship of pleasure. Verse 11, it says, For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. 
They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princess became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approached their intrigue. They're all night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Some scholars argue that verse 1 here is actually not a lament, but actually a promise. The Hebrew to English gets a little clunky, but it is more than likely written not um, when, I would hear, when I would hear Israel, but rather it's when I hear Israel. In other words, God is speaking of the eventual day when all is made right and when, it is all, and when all the fakeness and all the inauthenticity will be revealed. Those who named God with their lips but had their hearts far from him will be revealed in that day. And then the latter half of verse 1 through verse 2 describes the current state that Israel's in. Yes, they're offering these offerings, and yes, they're offering these sacrifices, and they're, and they're producing these love songs back to God, but they are operating with corrupt business ethics. They're co operating with corrupt business practices. They're everywhere. People are robbing one another everywhere. Folks are mugging one another everywhere. Evil everywhere because nobody actually believes God is present according to God. He says what? That nobody ultimately believes that I'm watching. You know, inauthenticity towards God is often not just due to a lack of love, but it can also be due to a lack of faith. You see, people will fake love for God when they don't necessarily carry any love for God, but they see that there is some advantage to be gained in the fakeness towards satisfying their idolatry, uh, idolatry. Rather, Does that make sense? People will fake love for God, even though they don't necessarily have any love for God. They will fake it because they believe it is a means to an end to continue to satisfy their, satisfy their idolatry. See, here, even in this text, everyone is doing whatever they want to because they don't believe that God can see them. And so there is not just simply an absence of love, but there's an absence of faith. Their treachery and their evil reaches all the way to the top of the political ladders here, according to verse seven or verses three through seven. It shows them that it shows that they are willing to use evil to gain favor with their rulers while actively actually planning and plotting to devour those rulers. Verse seven shows that, that instead of calling on God for help, they keep looking back to the unstable seats of power. It says, all of their kings have fallen, and yet none of them calls upon me. Verse, seven, verse 8 through 12, we hear this. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strengths, strangers rather, devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him. For all this, 
Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net, and I will bring them down like the birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. You see, do you see what's happening here? Israel's disingenuous love towards God is causing and being shaped by their mixing with other nations and their gods. By mixing with the other gods of the other nations, they are losing love for God, and literally it is shaping their disingenuous love for God. And it's, and it's, and it's this that has to be read first and foremost in, in the context of theocracy, where God is ultimately king. In other words, when you hear the words, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples or mixes himself with other nations, as some translations would render it. You can't say, oh, okay, well, that means that, that means, you know, America's not supposed to mix with other nations or America's not, or, or, or white people are not supposed to mix with black people or, you know, that, 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 segre that interracial thing is a bad thing. See, it's talking about no mixing. No, that's, that's from a context of theocracy where God is the ultimate king. This is not an encouragement to segregation. This is not an encouragement to anti-immigration. This mixing of nations is first and foremost about a people who lay claim to God and God lays claim to them, allowing other nations to bring their gods into their midst for the sake of political expedience. So the direct application of this is not America. America is not the, uh, not the contemporary extension of covenant Israel. The church is. So this is a warning for the church to not become intertwined culturally, religiously, or politically with the outside forces and powers in such a way that it corrupts our witness, our trust, and our love for Jesus. Notice that this mixing for political expedience in the name of pragmatism is unbeknownst to Israel actually weakening them. Do you see that? They don't know that it's weakening them, but God says that it is weakening them. They're losing their strength. Gray hairs are being sprinkled on them, and they don't even know it as they continue to make these, these alliances with people who do not serve the living God. They're calling to Egypt. They're calling to Assyria. And in the meantime, they are growing weaker and weaker and weaker. In the meantime, the source of their true hope, in the meantime, the source of their true strength, according to verse 14, remain, remains uncalled upon. See, they could actually get help if they were calling on the right name. But they're calling to the nations. And as they call to the nations and they accept their gods for politi political expedience, they are losing the strength that they have. Verse 14 says, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. In other words, for provision, grain and wine, they practice the same rituals that the nations practice gashing and harming themselves. In other words, out of political expedience, out of in order to get money, in order to get profit, in order to get protection, they say, whatever you guys do, we'll do. In order to get, in order to get protection and in order to get provision, they say, no, 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 that's not our God, or at least his ways, no, 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 we don't have to do it his way, we, we'll do it your way. 
they rebel against me. Their eyes don't look upward towards the heavens, but rather they look right in front of them at the human powers in front of them. Does that sound familiar? There's a growing call in the house of God to fret more over our alignment with national and political forces than our need and necessity to call upon Christ for our help and call upon Christ for our strength. And we're doing this all in the name of the Lord. Saints of God, this can quickly become the kind of disingenuous love that's described in chapter 6, verse 6. Sacrifices and offerings that are still present, but hearts that are far from God. Also, take careful note of something that's happening here. Their love for God has grown cold, God tells them in chapter 6, verse 6. Their love for God has grown disingenuous. And as a result, do you notice what's happening throughout the rest of the text? Their love towards others is also cold. Their love towards others is also disingenuous. People have become means to an end. Corruption becomes not only acceptable, but we too actually begin to participate in it. Exploitation of others is tolerated. Robbing others, pillaging others, harming others, all becomes acceptable. Confidence in political affiliations that begins to allow us to treat others who don't share those political affiliations, to treat, others, to treat those with contempt. That becomes standard practice. You see, when love for God is disingenuous, love for others evaporates eventually as well. In fact, in fact, when we are in our spaces, wherever those spaces may take us, and we're saying all sorts of unmentionable things about the other people, whoever those other people may be, the Republicans, the Democrats, the Hispanics, the Asians, the whites, the blacks, and people begin to look at us and say, your God looks fake. What they are observing is a disingenuous love towards God that is leading towards a disingenuous love towards them. They are reading us oftentimes very accurately. Are you tracking with that? And so what do we do about this? We do what we find. We do what we find in chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers as the spring rains that water the earth, except we do it with authenticity. We do what chapter 6, verse 1 through 3 calls us to do. We answer the appeal that the prophet gives us, but we do it with an open heart. We do it with honesty. We do it in full confession. God, I know I'm not anywhere close to where I need to be, but honestly and truthfully, I need you more than I need any of this. 
with authenticity, we repent and we turn to the Lord for his discipline is not intended to break us, but rather his discipline is intended to awaken us. And so with authenticity, we turn to the Lord and we say, yes, Lord. My ways are not your ways. I have often sought to find uh, provision and find protection outside of you, but I need you more than I need them. And so it is to you I, to you I turn. With authenticity, we press on to know the Lord. We press, we press on, Hosea says, we press on to know the Lord. We push past all of the hurdles. We push past all, the, all of the obstructions that get in the way from us knowing the Lord. We press in to know the Lord. We press in to get into community. We press in to pray. We press in to worship and, and, and offer our lives as devotion. Because when we press in, God is sure as the spring rains to make himself known. And with, and with authenticity, we remember that our hope is not in the political affiliations. Our hope is not in the political powers of the day, the national powers of the day. Our hope is not in the princes, the princes or the princesses or the queens or the kings or the prime ministers or the presidents or the congressmen and women. But our hope is ultimately in God. Psalm 26 and 8, 6 through 8, it says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Our trust it's not in a king. Our trust is in the king of kings. Our trust is not in the one who rode chariots up the hill, but our trust is in the one who carried a cross up the hill and was placed on that cross and hung to die and resurrected from the grave with all authority and all power in his hand. And it's to him that we look and we say with authenticity, Lord, Lord, we trust you. Lord, we love you. And Lord, we put all hope in you. No matter what is going on in this world, we will not look to the right. We will not look to the left for hope and for protection and for provision. We will look up from whence comes our help. Let's pray.